Just a trigger warning for today's episode, we discuss domestic abuse, sexual abuse, and violence against women. If you're not in a place to be able to hear some of that subject matter today, please come back at a point where you feel comfortable to listen. I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is someone who is a huge inspiration to me. Charlotte Neer is the CEO of I Choose Freedom Charity, which is a charity that directly helps women who are fleeing from domestic abuse and provides a pathway to freedom for survivors. They have three refuges that house women and children. Charlotte's a survivor of domestic abuse herself and gives a unique insight into the challenges women and children fleeing abuse face. As well as the direct work with women and children, she is known for campaigning nationally and internationally for the rights of victims of domestic abuse. In 2021, Charlotte received the honour of being appointed Deputy Lieutenant of Surrey in recognition of her work in the county, and then she was subsequently awarded an MBE in the Jubilee Honours List for her work with survivors of domestic abuse. Charlotte's priority and mission is to ensure that all survivors fleeing abuse can access refuge space and to secure the national network of refuges. And just from a personal perspective, I totally adore her. So Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, thanks, Alice. What an introduction. That was amazing. Thanks. <laughs> well, you are amazing. And yeah, you really are someone to me who just is kind of the embodiment of turning an awful experience into just something so incredibly powerful and amazing. And the work that you now do, and look, I've come and seen it firsthand, is is quite simply life-changing for so many people. And I think today, one of the things that I wanted to explore was not only your own experience and what led you to where you are today, but also advice for others that might themselves be in this particular situation or know someone who might be because I feel like it will be really invaluable to get your advice from someone who's literally on the ground every day working you know within the within that world so look I wanted to start today by um asking you about your own experiences I know when we met just a few weeks ago I sort of said you know what are you happy to talk about so I know that I think you're comfortable to share your story um and I wondered if we could maybe start there I know that you know your work in the um, domestic abuse services has kind of come off the back of your own experience. So if you're happy to, can you kind of share what your experience was? Yeah, I mean, it it, it started for me um, from birth, really. Um, my mum was married um, twice to um, men that were um, controlling and abusive. So it was something I grew up with. And I mean, I don't remember my my real dad, but all I know are the stories. And my mum fled uh, that relationship because the violence turned against my brother. Um, and she said that's the reason that, that she left. But I don't really recall that because I was very young. But then my mum remarried. And I do have a lot of memories from that relationship. And yeah, just growing up, I think the best way that I could describe my childhood without going into too much detail is to say that I never felt safe throughout my childhood and yeah, the, the, the thought that, you know, my own children have been through that and felt that for some years is horrific really because I think what it created for me was um, an environment of shifting sands where I never really, as I say, I didn't feel safe but I was just hyper vigilant, and that's a word we use a lot when we're talking about domestic abuse is that you become absolutely aware of 
everything in your surroundings to such an extent that's not a normal extent. You're just aware of that person's mood, the way they look, the things they say, the things they do, the shape of their body, you know, slight facial expressions. And yeah, I just never felt safe because you never knew what was coming next. So that's where it started. And um, I think probably... I left home just after my 17th birthday. I could have gone to uni, but decided that actually I just wanted to leave home. So, um, and then I was living on my own, um, well, with friends actually at different times. It was quite a good time, in fact, um, sharing flats with friends and stuff. But um, at 18, I fell pregnant um, and yeah, that was a, a very difficult time, I think, I wanted to keep the baby and, um, you know, that was all that I wanted. And then probably about five or six months into the pregnancy, I sort of thought, actually, I can't even look after myself. And I'd had a bit of a breakdown, I guess you would call it, and um, made the really difficult decision to put him up for adoption and that happened. So I gave birth to him. I had him with me the whole time I was in the hospital. Um, and the nurses, the midwives kept coming and wheeling him away, actually. And they said every time, well, we don't want you to bond with him because it's going to be really difficult for you to give him up. Um, but actually, I just kept going and getting him back because I wanted that bond. Um, so anyway, I did um, put him up for adoption. It was it was very difficult, but um, it, it was the right decision at the time. Although, you know, I went backwards and forwards. And then um, after that, I think I was just so bereft, really, that I, I was very, I couldn't even look at a baby without crying. And I sort of look back now and think, is that why the, the next course of my life happened? So when I was, um, I'm just trying to think of how old I was, I think I must have been about 23. Um, I met my soon-to-be husband and he was, God, all the signs now. When I look back, I think I should have known, but I didn't know. I was only young. I was vulnerable. My brother actually had just been diagnosed with leukemia. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, I was lonely and met met my ex-husband and he just bombarded me with with love and showered me with you know so much attention and wanted to be with me the whole time and wanted to move in straight away and you know I wanted to be loved and I wanted to have that person that I was everything to and of course now I would say obviously that's not that healthy but then you know it was what I needed it was what I wanted and I think people in the local area knew what he was like because he already had a history of domestic abuse and a couple of people did try to warn me actually and I suppose that's quite difficult to understand from an outside perspective why didn't you listen to that warning but you know, when you're hearing, you know, well, my ex is just crazy. She's this, she's that. And, you know, of course, she's going to say that she still wants to be with me. And remember, that person is extremely manipulative. So you you want to hear the best. You don't want to think about the negatives. And so he moved in almost straight away and started sort of implementing, you know, isolation tactics as they do and said very early on, you know, 
most couples that go out individually, they're cheating on each other. We wouldn't do that, would we? We we always want to be together. And, you know, anything that I could do to reassure him, because the other thing was he presented this very different side as being very vulnerable. Um, so everything I could do to reassure him, I did. And actually, it's important to talk about the vulnerability side, because I think that's one of the under-discussed things of domestic abuse is not actually one of the most powerful things a domestic abuser can do to you is threaten suicide. And of course, we had that and you feel as the partner of somebody that's abusing you actually very responsible for them and like their carer in some ways. And again, this is maybe going a bit off track, but you know, I had started already wanting to reassure him that, you know, I was his and that we were together and, you know, and then the violence didn't actually start till probably about a year into the relationship. And when it did, it was horrific. But again, he kind of played the, I'm so sorry, was crying, the, you know, I can't live without you. And, you know, maybe had I not had the childhood that I'd had, perhaps I would have been more aware of what I deserved and, you know, my worth as a person. But I think growing up with it, I just kind of felt sorry for him. And actually, my priority was making sure he was all right. And, you know, the violence could be overlooked, which seems weird to say, but it could, it could be swept under the carpet. And then we'd have a cycle of, you know, love and the love bombing, which happens after a violent incident, and then gradually it deteriorates. And then there's another violent incident. And anyway, we married, I had children with him and um, ultimately divorced him. Um, which just one sentence does not cover it all. I mean, the life threatening, stuff that he did and the fear that that person instills you can't just walk away from a domestic abuser and ultimately some years later when I was working at I Choose Freedom where I still am now um, I got the courage to um, pursue a criminal conviction and he got sent to prison eventually I have to say that that wasn't at my instigation that was another woman that came forward and said he'd been incredibly violent he'd attempted to use a knife and she went to the police she was the brave one and the police contacted me because obviously earlier incidents and I said yeah okay now's the time to stand up and be counted but it really was her actually that instigated that so yeah, having him in prison was a good chance to have some breathing space and be completely cut off from him. But um, yeah, and I wanted to do the job that I'm doing to help other women and cliched as it sounds to be the person that wasn't there for me when I needed them. And I absolutely love doing what I'm doing and helping other women. But yeah, that's how I've got to where I have got to. Gosh, there is just so much in there. And thank you so much for sharing that. Because I know that, you know, even myself, sometimes when you kind of regurgitate the story, you can almost become desensitized to telling it. And then sometimes you'll you'll tell it once and it'll just really catch you and you go, oh God, like I can't believe that that was what I went through. So I just want to say how much I appreciate you for sharing that. A couple of things that I wanted to touch on, you made a comment about sort of saying, you know, perhaps it was this, you know, perhaps it was my childhood. And and I think it's something really interesting for us to understand and maybe to unpick is in life, you know, and I notice this a lot, we, we want reasons why we want, you know, this happened because this was, you know, this was my, this was, this happened because basically. And I wondered with abuse, you know, and with reference to that statement, 
do women always try and find a reason why something happened to them? And is that actually, is that helpful for us? You know, I guess my, my question is sometimes these things just happen for no reason. And because someone is completely awful and, um, almost trying to find a reason why is, is, is really complex and challenging. And I wondered if you could sort of touch on that. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the time victims can have been brought up in an abusive household. Um, but, but as you say, not every case, sorry, by any means. And I think it's interesting. Yes, you're right. We always do try and find a reason. And I can certainly look back and see that there were vulnerabilities in me at that time. But the reality is with domestic abuse and particularly coercive control, it is so confusing. How did I get into this situation? And I think there's, you know, that's probably a large reason why, you know, me and many other women think, what was the reason for this? How did it happen? Because you're just trying to understand how you got embroiled in this situation in the first place. And, you know, from an outside perspective, oh, it's so easy, just leave. But you don't, you know, there are a hundred reasons why you're in that relationship. And you're right, it probably isn't that helpful to try and identify what the reasons were, because the reality is that perpetrator is a perpetrator. And it was sheer misfortune that he picked you and not somebody else. So, um, yeah, I think as I say, there, there. You know, if you've, if, if you're, if it's your normal from a child, then obviously you're more conditioned already to be involved in a domestic abuse relationship. But it literally can happen to anybody. And um, working in the refuge, I know that better than most. You know, we have women from all walks of life, all professions, all backgrounds. Um, yeah, there's no it doesn't need to have been for a particular reason. Yeah, really interesting to understand. And I think the next thing that I wanted to pick up on, which I just made a note about, was the the vulnerabilities element that you talked about, because I think that's a really important dynamic of abusive relationships to understand. You know, my ex definitely used threats of suicide. I have horrific memories of, of you know, awful things happening and, um, you know, feeling completely responsible for him and and his behavior and almost as though, and, and, and because of the coercive control, because of the gaslighting, feeling totally to blame for the reason why they behave the way they do or they're doing what they're doing. So I think it's really important how you manage that within the refuge and how you manage that with the women that you work with when there's a sense of, I'm to blame for this or I'm responsible, but even partly for some of this. You know, I know that even years later, I've spoken to, other women who've experienced similar things and there's still that tiny part of yourself that thinks oh but did I you know was there something that I did that that triggered this or you know there's still that element of blame how do you work through that particularly when it comes to that sort of vulnerability side I think for me personally it was easy because he'd done it to lots of other women um so I wasn't you know I wasn't left thinking in any way that I was responsible because there was a history of him doing it to other women. But for women in the refuge, yeah, it is so difficult. And we work intensively for six months usually while women live in the refuge to kind of unpick what has happened. This is not your fault. You are not to blame. And also, obviously, a lot of women in the refuge have their kids with them. So they feel guilty about being in the refuge. This, you know, I've put us here. I've made my kids change schools. I've, you know, put them through this. And, you know, to a degree, I still have to fight that myself with my own kids. But it's, you know, it's working really hard to sort of say to that victim or survivor, whichever term you prefer to use, you know, this is not your fault. Did you choose 
to be abused? Did you choose to be in a refuge? And actually, if the answer to those questions is no, then the blame doesn't lie with you. And you know, abusers are so clever. It is a real sort of process of brainwashing. And, and you know, as we've discussed, it's not all about the violence. It can often be, oh, I can't live without you. And that is really difficult to break that whole, oh my goodness, he's not going to be able to cope if I leave him. And, you know, trying to, the way I visualize it is, when women are in refuge, and, and it's what I had to do myself, and actually I was helped by prison, what I try to do is to help those women to understand that if you have any line of contact with that perpetrator, be it through friends and family, just saying, oh, I saw so-and-so in the pub, or he's doing this, he's doing that, or if you've got any social media that you can see or hear anything that that person's doing, you are essentially giving them an open door into your brain. And really, the only way that you can recover from domestic abuse is to absolutely shut that door and not give them any access to your thought process. Because what will happen over time, if you do that, is the thoughts of them and their helplessness, in inverted commas, and you know everything will diminish. I'm not saying it will go completely, but it will give you the breathing space to be able to be away from that influence, close that mental door in your brain, and stop letting them have access to your thoughts. So um, I don't know if that's helpful, but that certainly works for a lot of women we work with and has worked for me. It is really helpful. And I think on that subject of recovery, I think, you know, there's a bit of a jump between ending that relationship that you found yourself in and, and going to work for the charity that you now find yourself, you know, kind of pioneering now. What was that recovery journey like? I know that um, recovery can be a massively complex thing and is different for every woman that comes out of abusive relationships but in your specific situation what did recovery look like um and how did you find yourself almost getting to the point where you were then able to position yourself as a frontline service for women going through the same thing i think in terms of professionally, I'm able to compartmentalize really effectively. And I don't know whether that's as a result of the abuse, probably, but I'm able to compartmentalize professionally and personally. But in terms of recovery, personally, it's an ongoing job. I mean, you know, I I waited years and years and years to have a committed relationship. I only got married two years ago to my husband. And even now, we're still discovering some of the things that he might say or do that are triggering. And we're talking about probably the most laid back, kindest, most caring, you know, he's a nurse, he's just absolutely an amazing human being. And yet, even small things, facial expressions, words, you know, can put me in this sort of traumatized place. So, you know, and we're talking years and years and years later, one of the reasons if I'd been able to that I didn't get into a relationship was because I think my kids had been through so much that I didn't want to put them through that again. Um, but honestly, I think, I don't think I'd have been ready either. But again, we're all different. And a lot of um, victims of domestic abuse do get quickly into other relationships. The danger of that, I think, is, you know, there's no judgment. If you want to do that, of course, that's fine. But I believe the danger of doing that is you may not do the work on yourself to regain yourself as a whole human being if that's what your path ends up being and you know I what I would say is 
it took me years and years to realize what was normal. You know, so much conditioning of accepting that being strangled or, you know, attempted to be stabbed and, you know, the, the perpetrator has a way of making that all seem normal. And it takes a long time to actually figure out what normality is. I actually really just want to touch on that because I think it's really important is there's often an escalation with these behaviors. And I totally understand that in my situation was it starts very small and it's very quick. And well, I, I don't want to generalize, so I'll speak from personal experience. But yeah, it starts very small. They're instantly apologetic. And you're absolutely right that over time and with compounding of kind of experiences stuff then becomes normalized and the stuff that at the start was like oh this is really bad that's not normal becomes oh it was only that and it wasn't that bad and you you learn to almost just like build a life around this stuff and completely normalize it and completely see that it's you know something that actually you can kind of just get through it's it's a it's a very difficult and complex mental position to find yourself in we'll be back after this Welcome back to Give Me Strength. My next question and my next point was really around such a huge topic around the the kind of taboo of why didn't you just leave? You know, <laughs> people that haven't experienced domestic abuse either firsthand or by proxy through other people. It can be a really myopic and challenging statement to sort of question, well, why, why didn't you just leave? How do you answer that question in a, in a diplomatic way? I mean, it's a massively complex topic, but I guess with, with as much diplomacy, because I can see your face at the moment, <laughs> as you can, how do we answer that question? And I guess in the same breath, kind of help people and explain why it's so complex and such a m- more complicated answer, you know? Oh, that question is the bane mm. of my life. So I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, yeah, I get why if you have lived a life where you've never experienced domestic abuse, why you might ask it because you might think that in a normal relationship, if you don't want to be with somebody, you split up with them. But what those people don't understand is this is not a normal relationship. And actually, if you're with somebody, a dangerous abuser, you can't split up with them. And if you split up with them, they might kill you. So um, that is very difficult. That's a very difficult concept if you've not experienced it to to understand. (laughs) But the reality is, yeah, look, there are hundreds of reasons why you can't just leave an abuser. But part of it is the conditioning, which is, you know, this, what we've talked about, this drip, 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 kind of altering your sense of what's reality, what's normality, the danger, as we've talked about, because statistically, you're much more at risk if you try and leave. That's when the risk of homicide, um, you know, massively increases when you try and end a relationship. So, but then, you know, there are financial things I already mentioned in my own story. One of the tactics an abuser does is to move in with you very quickly and to kind of monopolize your world, to isolate you from friends and family. So sort of support networks and people saying, you know, is this what's going on here? Are you okay? Those have been diminished. Finances, we, you know, we understand a lot more now about financial control. And often, you know, women have had any means of financial sort of independence stripped from them. So, you know, there are a multitude of different reasons, but I wish that anybody who's ever thought that or worse ever said it 
just wouldn't do it because it's so unhelpful. And what it also is, and this is something we fight against tooth and nail in the refuge, it's a judgment. It's a judgment against that woman saying, essentially, well, if I was in your place, I'd have left. I wouldn't have put up with him punching me in the face or, you know, doing whatever, whatever. You know, keep that judgment to yourself because this person's struggling enough. I completely agree. And actually on that, Charlotte, I actually think it'd be better if you explained it. You know, there are, I know there are certain requirements for women to enter into one of your refuges. If you could talk about the monumental shift of even having to get to a point where you're able to be there and how your life has to change literally overnight. Yeah, coming into a refuge is a big decision. It is not something that anybody would take lightly. And honestly, it's not something you would do unless you really felt your life was in danger because it is a big thing to do. And, you know, there are, it's difficult because we we are a... Um, a support service that is non-judgmental and needs-led and trauma-informed and yet the converse of that is that we do have to have rules and it's not just rules to keep that woman and her children safe it's rules to keep all of the other women and children who are living in that refuge safe and it's rules to keep the staff safe so the way that I kind of think about it and maybe it sounds a bit dramatic is that actually it's a bit like going into witness protection you have to give up a lot because the whole point of going into refuge is to save your life really and to stop you being murdered so you would we don't take anybody from in the local area we have strict criteria about the kind of radius that we would take somebody from and the reason for that is one you know obviously these families are very at very high risk but you wouldn't want to in the local town bump into somebody that knows the perpetrator or you know the perpetrator themselves so from a sort of practical point of view it's much much better that you come from further away we say a minimum of 25 miles but actually I would much prefer women to come from a a much longer distance away so when from the very first moment actually that we have that phone conversation with a woman we're having that kind of risk assessment is prominent throughout that conversation so um you know how have you called us does the perpetrator have access to your call logs if you're coming to us don't stop at a bank don't draw any money out because we want to kind of minimize the trail of how how um survivors have got to us Often from that first phone call, we will set up um, free transport for them. There's a scheme that came out of our documentary, actually, which is called Rail to Refuge. And that is free rail transfer for anybody that needs to access a refuge place. And perhaps there'd be some links, Alice, that we could put in for anybody that might need to use that um yeah so so when they when families come to refuge and it's important to think about children actually i mean younger children of course it's incredibly traumatic but actually where we sort of struggle the most really is with um teenagers you know kind of from about 11 maybe even younger now upwards where they've been ripped away from their friends their family their toys their pets and the most difficult one of all is social media so um helping them And actually, the other thing with children as well, particularly young people, is if they've been in this environment for for a very long time, trying to unpick what's happened for them as well. And they will have complex feelings because the perpetrator, if it's their father, they may still love that person despite the things that they've done. So um, we have to cut off all routes to contact. And the only way children will be able to see their father would be through a family court. 
Um, and to be honest, we wouldn't really want to facilitate that while the children were in refuge, because again, that presents all sorts of um, dangers that we can't safely manage. So yeah, social media, any kind of um, other, you know, I don't know, Snapchat, for example, has got that snap maps where you can see literally the exact location of somebody within meters to where they are. So we have to do a, a big sort of digital de-cleanse. And that usually involves giving phones, new phones to the family, which is, a you know, a thing we have to fundraise for. Or if anyone's got any great smartphones they want to give us, obviously, we gratefully receive. So yeah, a digital cleanse. Um, and then when they're living in the refuge, it's funny, isn't it? We, t- we say to kids, don't you know, don't keep secrets. But yet we expect the children at school not to tell their friends that they're living in a refuge. They can't tell them where it is. They can't have their friends back to tea. So if it's their birthday, we we would organise a party in the refuge, which is lovely, actually. But it's still sad that kids, you know, can't have that normal childhood that they might otherwise have. So, yeah, and women have to give up their jobs and, you know, potentially any education. That is changing slightly, I have to say. One of the really great things that's come out of COVID is this working from home. So there is still a possibility now for women going into refuge that they would carry on working from home remotely. But to be honest, the amount of trauma that that woman's going to be dealing with when she arrives at refuge, it's probably better for her to have a break anyway. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot and there's a huge amount of, it's not just a roof over their heads. People have this image of a grim place, but actually it's not, it's beautiful. But we, it's not just housing, it's to do with, you know, therapy. So we employ, you know, qualified psychotherapists for the women, for the adolescents. We've got play therapists on the team. So six months probably sounds a long time to be living at that refuge, but the amount of stuff that gets done and setting that family up with a whole new life, new schools, new jobs, new education, new GP, new friend groups, you know, all of that takes time and we'll do all of that. So it's really setting them up a new life free from abuse. Oh God, I've literally got goosebumps. And and look, I've seen it firsthand. I I know when I first came, I don't know what I expected a refuge to look like. I think that's a really important thing for us to discuss because I know that many people that are listening here will have no experience of refuge, thankfully, and won't even know what it looks like. What does it look like? Um, You know, I remember when I came to yours, it's a beautiful house. You could walk past it and you'd never know that that was a refuge. And I know that there's some locally to me that I'd walk past and I'd never know that, 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 you know, however many women were living there and it was such an incredibly supportive environment because the whole point of it is it's supposed to be undiscoverable. But I think that it's really important that you drove home the point there that it's a lovely environment. It's not grim. It's actually full of, and I said this last time I came to visit, I remember saying it on Instagram stories, it is full of joy, love, fun, community. Uh, and I'm sure, Charlotte, and I, I know that there are going to be times when it's incredibly grim and it's hard and it's difficult. And I don't doubt that for a second. But knowing you and knowing where you position yourself, I know that you know the experiences that I've had seeing it are wholly positive. And I think it's really important to talk about that. You know, it's not just, you know, as, as much as everything that you detailed there is so difficult to even imagine. You know, if I think having to uproot my life now, cut off all contact with people that I once did, you know, it's it's such a huge thing. But it's not, um, well, firstly, it is, as you said, to save someone's life, which we have to remind ourselves of. You know, I think that w- when we spoke, you sort of said the, the people that come into refuge are those who find themselves at, at risk of, you know, there's a, a threat to life. Um, 
and that tends to be who you have in the refuge but also you know that that, that it's if they come to a place where it's so full of joy and love and I think um it would be lovely to hear about you know what you guys you've talked about kind of I guess the more um st- structural things that you put in like the psychotherapy the trauma-informed stuff but also the other side the community aspect the togetherness the um bonding that happens between those people that all find themselves kind of in a similar situation I think actually it's funny because there is an argument um for self-contained accommodation you know nationally should refugees be communal or should they be self-contained we've got a mix of both actually but the communal refugees I think the value in those refuges is the peer support and you know often at night there's a group of women all sitting around when the kids have gone to bed just sharing their stories and supporting each other if one's had a really difficult day you know say for example she's had an invite to go to family court you know all the other women are rallying around and and you know providing that you know just that support that you would get from your friends and your family that you're not getting because you're so far removed and so the value of that I cannot describe. It really is a wonderful thing. Now, I'm not saying everyone gets on all the time because obviously that would not be logical. So there is a bit of time that's spent sort of mediating when people have fallen out, usually about the cleaning or <laughs> their kids have had a fight. So sometimes, you know, that there is that element of it. But yeah, the, the support that the women give each other is just incredible. And, you know, one of the things <clears throat> that... I I always find incredibly sad is that statistically women are more prone to domestic abuse when they're pregnant. And so we often have pregnant women living with us. Um, And again, you know, that the women will form a bond around this, this woman, we'll have baby showers, you know, and we'll try and be the family that that woman hasn't got. And, you know, my colleagues have all been birth partners and, you know, detail it as the most amazing experience ever. So it's a very bittersweet you know, experience that it's beautiful and it's joyful, but at the same time, you know, sad that that woman's having that experience in a refuge. So we also do, um, one of the things that can be quite difficult in in our refuges is is new women. So when a woman comes in, she kind of thinks, am I going to fit in? And often, initially, she might stay in her room. So we'll obviously pick up on that because we're on site. We don't have our offices in their house, but we're up the garden usually. Um, but we would pick up if somebody was not coming out of their room and not engaging with the other women. So what we tend to do when that happens is to organize a day where everyone cooks a dish. And I cannot tell you the value of cooking a dish together and having, you know, other women support other women who might not even know how to cook, to cook different dishes. And, you know, those days, when I look back on my career, those are the days that kind of stand out as the most joyful when it's all the women in the kitchen chatting and, you know, taking a woman under their wing. And, you know, those are the moments that I think, yeah, this is what it's all about. And, you know, this woman's going to get through it. And um, I think, What we also know is that the first two weeks in refuge is pretty critical. And that's when all of the other women's support comes in as well. So when we have a new woman come into the refuge, if there's a chance that she's going to go home, it's probably likely it's going to happen in the first two weeks. So we all know the staff and the women that live at the refuges, that is the time that we really look after her. And so every woman has a buddy, as as we call it, that they're buddied up with so that that woman can take them around, show them the town, show them how to use all the equipment, you know, washing machines and all of that kind of thing, and just make it as easy as possible. And talking about making it as easy as possible, 
I stayed in a refuge myself years ago and it was awful and hence one of the reasons why I wanted to get into this it was horrific and um I left after a night and came home and I remember one of the well probably actually the kind of turning point the crystal clear turning point for me was with my three kids I walked into the bedroom and there was just like dirty crumpled bedding on the beds and that there was a moment there that I thought I just can't do this and what a ridiculous thing to go home over but that was the thing that sent me home and so we all know that actually we need to really work to make sure we do everything to make sure this woman doesn't go home. And we've now got it down to such a fine art that it's exceptionally rare that anyone will go back to the relationship. But that's not just the staff, that's the women as well. We all work hard to make sure that, you know, new arrivals feel like they can do it because it's hard enough. Yeah, I've seen a room set up for a new arrival and just even some of the lovely touches that you put in are so special. And it just means, you know, if someone does find themselves in that horrifically challenging situation, they walk in and they're like, oh, they've really thought about this. You know, there's so much care and attention gone into prepping the room and what you put in there and how you make it up for them. That I just think it's just, you know, it's the best it could be coming from such a difficult place. So I think that's total credit to you. And it's it's amazing that you're able to kind of channel everything that you didn't get into making such a positive space. And I think that any woman that that finds themselves with you as difficult as that must be is is in the is in the best place. I wanted to um I wanted to touch on something that that we've kind of slowly picked up on over the the course of this conversation which is life after abuse. Um we've spoken a lot about the kind of heavy interim period where either you're just deciding to leave, you've just left um and, and or either even just going through it. But I think you are a brilliant proof of so much life and happiness and thriving, you know, after abuse. And it's really important that we hear those stories. I think, you know, you, me, others who have shared their experiences, it's so important to talk about that side as well, because when you're in the thick of it, it can feel as though you're never going to escape from the pull of that ex. Um, so I wondered if you could talk about, you know, how you help women to shape life after abuse, your advice, your own personal experiences, and and really like what you think makes the difference in, in creating a positive life after abuse. Well, I think, first of all, it's understanding how it happened in the first place, because, you know, trying to unpick, as I said before, how you got into that situation. So the work that we do pretty much throughout women's stay in refuge is helping them to understand it, also kind of helping them to look out for the signs in the future because there are signs and you know there are key kind of features across most perpetrators that are you know it's like they've all read the same book of tactics um so I think part of setting yourself up for a healthy relationship later in life if that's what we're talking about is what do I avoid? And that's still not to say that it's going to be your fault if you end up in another abusive relationship afterwards, but it's just giving you the, you know, the tools to recognize the things that they did to get you there in the first place. And yeah, I mean, we, we at my refuge run a program called the Freedom Program which you can look up online. Um, you can join online courses for the Freedom Programme. You can watch the animated version. There are other courses, but we've just always used the Freedom Programme and I've done it myself. And I have to say, it was transformational for me, even though I was already working in the sector at the time. So, um, yeah, I think also one of the other things that 
that we do is we talk about and you know it's a difficult subject but we talk about sexual abuse as part of domestic abuse and that can often be one of the last things a woman will ever disclose to anybody and it's again important to work through those issues and help them to understand that ultimately if you're in an abusive relationship and if you if you cannot say no to sex because you're in that abusive relationship and you feel that your partner will punish you in some way if you say no then you're not saying yes and you're you're being coerced into that and actually that is rape and that's a very difficult um process for women to go through that understanding but actually a really important one and important for future relationships because actually you need to do the work on your you know what's happened to you sexually to be able to have a healthy relationship in the future and so there are there are many different facets that that we'll work on i said earlier that it, i think it's important to take time to find what is normal in a relationship and if you don't then potentially you're in danger of you know being in another relationship where there's abuse because you might have the tendency to accept behaviors that you shouldn't accept and i think one of the things that's common amongst a lot of um survivors is you i think you know if you see things in black and white it's actually a lot easier but you know if you think to yourself well maybe he's doing that because he had a difficult childhood or maybe he's doing that because you know his last girlfriend cheated on him or maybe he's doing that because whatever 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 but actually what you need to learn is the mindset that is it doesn't matter why he's doing it it's just not okay and you know that kind of almost that empathy that's that's a real positive trait you need to switch that off in some ways to a degree because and set boundaries boundaries is a word that we use all the time because it's such an important one you know if you've been in an abusive relationship that person will not have respected any boundaries that you've set so a good start i think when you're out of a relationship is to you know, let's say you're out dating to start setting boundaries with the people that you're having dates with you know I can't think of an example, but, you know, if I say that I don't want you to call me, I'd rather you texted or something, just anything that you can think of, see if that person respects that boundary. And if they do, that's a good start. You know, it's it's about valuing yourself. Oh, God, so overused, but it is true. You know, knowing that you're worth being treated well. And, you know, as I say, taking the time to figure out what's normal. I think that's such a perfect answer. I love that last bit as well, valuing yourself and knowing that you deserve better. It's so important when your confidence is on the floor, when you leave these situations, it's impossible sometimes to think of being treated you know any better and actually sometimes thinking that you don't deserve better is, is a huge part of it so I think getting yourself to a place where you know that fundamentally you deserve someone who treats you with utmost respect who is kind who is all the things that I know that you and I have now found thankfully um it's it's really important that you that you have that as a kind of a fundamental building block of your recovery um I want to talk about a really challenging thing now because when I last came to see you, we had a difficult conversation about funding. And I know that it's something that causes you sleepless nights and is a huge, you know, part of, of your work is trying to keep it going. Um, 
you know, you're not handed boundless amounts of money from the government. Uh, you're not kind of bringing in loads from various other ways. You you rely solely on funding, fundraising, and and and, and grants, but. It's really difficult. And if we think about the current financial situation that we find ourselves in, that's only exacerbated for services like yours, which, you know, are now getting less and less um, at a a point where you probably need more and more given the situation that that we are in. So can you talk to me a bit about how you operate as a charity? And I guess how people that are listening can help you. I know that there are going to be people that are sat there thinking, I'd love to help. Um, How can you and we, I guess, help the charity and also just understand how it operates because I think it's really important to understand that. Firstly, yes, you're right. I do have many sleepless nights. Um, I think, you know, that next financial year, we've got a £200,000 deficit and that's salaries. You know, the value of the service that we provide is in the support that we offer from the staff. So, you know, I need to bridge that gap somehow. And yes, the economic crisis has meant that people have been donating less. Um, I think the bigger picture nationally if you look at it, is that refuges in general have been shut down over the years. And so our current stats are that we're turning away four out of every five women that approach us for a space. Now, I don't want that to mean that somebody doesn't pick up the phone and try, try, please do if you can. But it just goes to show that the need for these spaces is absolutely, it's it's huge. And yet, the funding is is probably the reason why that is the case. So, for example, we would have a woman move out in the morning and we'd have another family move in in the afternoon. The spaces are always full. Um, if somebody wants to support us, it's ichoosefreedom.co.uk and there's a donate button. It's probably the biggest thing that you see when you log onto the page. Um, if you want to help, you know, volunteering wise we we do recruit volunteers as do most refugees but we probably keep that number quite limited because obviously we need to keep the location secret so it probably is from a financial point of view that you could make the biggest difference um we often get people saying you know i don't want to give you money because i want to know that it's actually going to the women fair enough i understand that so we would probably say well can you give us Sainsbury's vouchers then? Because that's what we give as part of our welcome package. And you'll know that is going directly to the women. So it's, you know, we just need as much support as we can possibly get. But it's not just us, it's refugees across the country. So if you've got links with one locally that you know of, then, you know, support them. We, they need it as much as we do. So, yeah, it's it's really challenging. I think I always knew it would be because, it's a taboo subject. Most people would rather pretend it wasn't happening. It's not a glamorous charity if there is such a thing. Um, you know, it's gritty, but it is real. And actually, if you look at the stats, one in four women in their lifetime is going to experience domestic abuse. It could be you. It could be your daughter. It could be your friend. It could be your family member. So, yeah, please do support us. We're trying to do life-saving work. I think we're doing a pretty good job, but, it, you know, we need you. A hundred percent. I would really urge anyone, even just go to website and have a little, you know, look at some of the work that they do and, and and read a little bit more about the charity. I mean, obviously Charlotte's done herself proud today with, <laughs> with talking about it, but, but yeah, there's, there's plenty of stuff to read up on there. And also your, 
uh, you uh, the Channel Four documentary I don't know is actually still able to view, but there is there is a YouTube short that I shared actually um, that shows a little bit of the the work that you do during COVID. So I might I, I might put the link to that in the show notes actually because that would be quite helpful for people to see because that kind of gives an insight into what it's like and um, was really helpful. The final thing that I want to talk about, and I guess this is more of like a bigger picture thing, but you know, like you're very on the ground, very hands on, very at the coal face, but at the same time, we know that what makes the biggest difference when it comes to women's safety and domestic abuse in, in particular is policy and policy changes and government making positive steps towards protecting women. One of the best things that we can do in that situation is therefore, you know, write to our local MPs to really petition for certain things to be pushed through. And I wondered if there's anything that you think is particularly important that people can get behind, because we know that that is really how the bigger picture improves. Well, I think there are several things. First of all, look, it's not fair that anyone should have to go into a refuge. It's not fair that a victim should have to give up their house, their life. But the reality is, sometimes that's the only way to keep somebody safe. So first of all, more funding for refuges, more refuge spaces. That would be my first thing. The second thing I would say, and not all victims want to go through the criminal route as I did. A lot of victims just want to be away and to be safe. But if they did choose to go through the criminal route, longer sentences, you know, more communication when that person gets out of prison. I think the probation offer for victims, victim liaison officers do an amazing job, but actually their hands are tied in terms of what they can do to support the victim. So a a reformed probation service would be something that I would um, dearly like to see happen. So for example, when that person gets out of prison, the victim is not allowed to be told where that person is going to be living because of the offender's human rights. And to me, that just feels absolutely horrific. Why should the victim not know the area that the offender is going to be in so that they can move if they need to or protect themselves. So things like that. So yeah, reform of the probation service, longer sentences, more funding for refugees. You know, look, there's a lot we can do. The domestic abuse bill that came in several years ago has made some great changes. One of the most significant was that children um, who have grown up in households where there's domestic abuse will be viewed as victims in their own right. And believe it or not, children were not viewed as victims in their own right prior to the the law coming in. So, And the difference that could make, for example, hasn't happened yet, but I hope it will, is that if in family court, for example, the perpetrator of the abuse is seeking contact with the children, that child will be viewed as a victim of domestic abuse, despite whether they were physically harmed or they were in the next room or whatever, they will be viewed as a first person victim and therefore how could the family court award contact with that child and that perpetrator so I think that is something I would I would dearly love to see come to fruition but it's made a good start the bill's brilliant but so much more can be done yeah absolutely one final thing I wanted to talk about uh was that I wanted to finish on a happy ending and I know that you have some incredibly like wonderful news that you've recently um, gone through. And I wondered if if to end, you could share that and share a little bit of from where we started to where you are now. I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start crying actually while I'm talking about it. So when I first told you my story, I told you that when I was 18, I gave up my son for adoption. And it's <laughs> something that over the years, I've really struggled with. I never forgot about him for a single day. His um, 
siblings, um, my son and my two daughters knew all about him. My husband, he says it's one of the first things I told him about before I, when I met him. Um, I was just watching TV um, at the end of November last year. And I got a message come through on Facebook Messenger saying that I had a message from an unknown person. And sometimes I get abuse because supporting women obviously sometimes does, you know, engender abuse. But anyway, I thought, should I open it? Should I not open it? I thought, I'll just have a look at it. And the first line said, I think you're the person that I'm looking for. And sorry. No, it's okay because I'm crying as well. It's so special. Uh, So... It was my son. And um, so he had reached out to me and he said, you know, not that I didn't have to respond immediately if I didn't want to. I did respond immediately because I wanted him to know that I'd seen it. But it it was <laughs> it was the most amazing thing. We met, I think, within a week, actually. And then um, subsequently, he's met his brother, his sisters. I've met his children, my grandchildren, which is incredible. I've met his parents. And it is honestly the happiest ending to the saddest story in my personal life. So, yeah, I'm just absolutely thrilled and blown away. And I checked if it was all right if if I had talked about it today with him. And he said it was fine. He's an amazing man. And I couldn't be prouder that he's my son oh Charlotte honestly you've really um (laughs) god I'm absolutely streaming I just um (laughs) sometimes you meet people in your life and you think oh my god like you are just the most special person and I hope you know that and like you know the work that you do and how amazing you are and I think you know sometimes moments like that where you think something like you know for all the shit that's been thrown at you something brilliant has happened and you deserve that and you know your life now and everything that you've built and you've worked so hard to do is just incredible and you know I I just want to say from my perspective you know the gratitude that I think I and anyone that's listening I'm sure has for you and the work that you do is is just unbelievable and um yeah I just wanted to say first of all how grateful I am for you for sharing everything today but also just yeah keep going and and I promise you with my whole heart and I know that we've spoken separately about things that we're going to do but I will support you as much as I physically can because it's so important so thank you so much um I'm going to go and now have to <laughs> cry it out a little <laughs> I bit I wish I, could, well. <laughs> I wish I could hug you I wish I'd give you a big old hug but um <laughs> I'm sending it virtually and um Look, we'll put the link to the donate um, section of your website into the show notes. We'll also put the link to the um, free transport for those fleeing domestic abuse and anything else that you think might be helpful. Um, And yeah, if anyone wants to find out any more, they're on Instagram at iTunes Freedom Charity and also, yeah, head to the website. So Charlotte, thank you so, so much. I'm sending so much love to you. Honestly, I really, really adore you. And um, yeah, I hope, well, I know that I'm going to see you very soon. So lots of love. Thanks, Alice. Thank you for having me. Thank you 
you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping every week, so it'll ensure that you don't miss out. And one really exciting new feature is that I would love to solve your problems. Our podcast is centered around giving people strength and resilience. And so if you have a question, a problem or anything else, you can send a message or a voice note to GMS at insanityhq.com. That's GMS at insanityhq.com. And me and my guest will spend a little bit of time at the end of every podcast answering your questions. See you next time. Insanity Group.